Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. What impact may last week's protests against the British Columbia LNG mega project have on both the Prime Minister and the Premier of British Columbia? I spoke to Mike Smith, political columnist at the Vancouver province and CKNW radio host about that, as well as the Burnaby by-election where federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is trying to get a parliamentary seat. If he doesn't, Is it going to turn into a replay of Ontario and the Progressive Conservative Party? Brexit. Tuesday's vote in the British Parliament could sink the government of Prime Minister Theresa May and possibly lead to a general election and a repeat of the Brexit referendum. Professor Emeritus Alan Sked of the London School of Economics, the founder of UKIP, the political party which gave birth to the Brexit movement, talked to me about this. A British Columbia couple is criminally charged after hog-tying in their home a man they accuse of trying to lure their 13-year-old daughter into sex. I spoke with Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor, about that, and Canada's new drunk driving law where police can come to your home up to two hours after you've driven and demand a breathalyzer. Listen. Now, uh, what impact may last week's protests against the British Columbia LNG MAGA project have along with the images of heavily armed police removing First Nations protesters. What impact on the Prime Minister and on the Premier of British Columbia, John Horgan, both have enthusiastically tied their flags to that particular project. And, of course, there's a federal election coming up on the 21st of October, and Mr. Horgan will eventually be facing an election in B.C., could be sooner than later. And there's the upcoming by-election in Burnaby for federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, who's looking for a seat in Canada's parliament. Now, what happens if Mr. Singh happens to lose that particular by-election? Then what happens with the federal NDP? Do we have a replay of what we saw in uh, Ontario with the Progressive Conservative Party in 2018? It could happen. I've been seeking some comment from folks in the federal NDP, but as you can imagine, they're not particularly willing to talk about this, but you can bet they're thinking about it. Now, Mike Smith joins me, political columnist with the Vancouver province, CKNW radio host. Mike, first of all, thanks so much for your time. You're very generous. It's my pleasure, Roy. Anytime. Let's start and have you explain to all of us in in the rest of Canada what the protest over the LNG mega project is, because it seemed to so many people that Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Horgan you know, as I said earlier, tied their flags to this project. Everything seemed to be fine. They were they were very confident things would go forward. And now we see what we see. And the certainly the visuals last week were not good. Yeah, you know what? This is the biggest private sector investment, not only in British Columbia history, but this is the biggest in Canadian history, the LNG Canada project. $40 billion, Roy. I mean, this thing is absolutely huge. And when it was approved last year... Premier John Horgan here in British Columbia and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, they could barely de- contain their glee that they had got this thing across the finish line. And for good reason. I mean, this is a big job creator here in British Columbia. It's going to generate a ton of uh, government revenue. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a terrific project for B.C. and for Canada. So to now see suddenly these very stark TV images that you just described yesterday 
of the, these very heavily armed police officers in combat gear uh, moving these uh, indigenous protesters off the off the uh, of the road in, in central British Columbia where they want to lay down a pipeline for this project. Very troubling for both levels of government because for Trudeau, this is a, a big uh, a big win for him in an election year, as you mentioned. Here in BC, you've got an NDP government under John Horgan where he faces criticism about his ability to deliver jobs and to protect the economy. So this thing just insulates both of them from any of these charges, you know, that this is a big job creator, a big project. So here we suddenly have these uh, hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation uh, opposing this pipeline, threatening to go back to court, threatening more protests, although there's now an, an, a very sort of uneasy truce now between the protesters and the RCMP. Yeah, it's a troubling prospect for sure, especially after they, uh, they approved the project with what appeared to be unprecedented support uh, from First Nation, all the First Nations impacted. I'm reading uh, your column, uh, LNG Mega Project, full steam ahead, but more protests loom in the province. And uh, I see that it's Susanna Pierce, who is uh, with the consortium that is building the LNG, uh, putting together the LNG project. And you write, for, LN- for the LNG consortium, it's a frustrating circumstance. After years of consulting with First Nation leaders, both elected and hereditary, quote, we listened to their concerns, we adapted the project, we moved uh, pieces of the project, we incorporated traditional knowledge into how we'll build the project, it was a very close collaborative relationship, and it's not something that happens immediately. It took years. Right. Um, so then the thinking goes on, as you're right, that perhaps it's people who are on the outside of this sort of cooperative uh, venture who are causing the disturbance now. Well, one of the complaints that we have from supporters of the project is that there are maybe uh, outside influencers from environment, uh, environmental protection groups that are opposed to any kind of big fossil fuel project that uh, may be involved in kind of spurring on these protests. And I think that's a legitimate concern to express. But also the, the frustration that we see from government and not only the, the companies behind this project is that they worked for years to achieve support from a lot of these First Nations. There are 25 separate benefit sharing agreements with this LNG project with impacted First Nations. A lot of them are going to make a lot of money uh, because of the, they're allowing this, the project to go through their traditional territories and they support it. And one of the reasons they support it, Roy, is that we're, ta- we're not talking about heavy, heavy uh, crude oil or uh, heavy bitumen that could be a problem if it spills into the marine environment. We're talking about liquefied natural gas. So if it does happen to be if there does happen to be a spill into the water, it it tends the stuff tends to just evaporate into the air. So much less environmental risk with this with this product, and it's one of the reasons a lot of First Nations supported it. And the thing is, though, a lot of these benefit sharing agreements were signed with the elected band councils of these First Nations. The opposition that we saw last week and, and the dramatic arrests we saw on the road are coming from the non-elected uh, hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation. Now, a lot of people might say, well, you know, who cares if these hereditary chiefs are opposed, uh, opposed to it? What a, we have the support of the elected band council. Aren't they more important? The thing to remember is that these hereditary chiefs do have authority. They do have power. 
If you recall, there was a very key court case, for example, called the Delgamook decision of the Supreme Court of Canada in 1997 that confirmed the existence of Aboriginal title over a lot of these lands. Crucial, uh, groundbreaking decision of the highest court in Canada. That was a case that was brought by the hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en. They are currently in treaty negotiations with the B.C. government, with the hereditary chiefs. They have power and they have court uh, decisions to back them up as precedents. So although some people are certainly very frustrated to hear that some unelected hereditary chiefs are, are trying to block this project, the fact is, the, the, the big fear is, do they, do they go back to court and potentially win and potentially try and stop or delay this project? That's yeah. a big threat to Trudeau and, and certainly to Premier John Horgan here in B.C. And Mike, the whole idea of the band councils and the hereditary chiefs, that's a reality right across Canada. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that, that is the, the, the traditional form of governance that we've, we've come to uh, understand and deal with in Canada. It's the, what the B.C. government is calling here is the re-emergence of the hereditary chief system, and especially after that Delgamook decision of the Supreme Court of Canada and other court cases where these hereditary chiefs may have power and authority outside of uh, First Nations reserves so over the traditional territories that they claim. So, you know, a lot of people are throwing their hands up in the air and saying, oh, isn't this, how can these unelected people be blocking this project that the band council supports? It is a frustrating thing, but the fact is they do have some authority here that's been established by the courts, and that's the fear that this could be delayed further. The company, though, the consortium is saying, uh, we, we continue to work with these hereditary chiefs and also with the elected band councils. We have no intention of backing down from this project. It's full steam ahead. We intend to put this pipeline in the ground, and we, we want to start exporting this natural gas to Asia and elsewhere. Um, and and it, it probably very likely will go through. There is a lot of support for it, but there's a lot of fear uh, Roy, when you see these type of dramatic arrests like we saw last week, oh, of course. And there's the the issue as well, Mike. And again, this uh, this is this is national, but particularly in Western Canada, the issue of foreign investment. If the energy sector appears to be um, less than stable, then uh, foreign investors are not going to be excited about pouring huge amounts of money into this country. Well, that's very true. I mean, this is a foreign-backed project we're talking about here. The consortium behind the LNG Canada project includes Shell includes uh, Petronas out of uh, Malaysia. So a lot of these big multinational oil and gas companies are behind this project, and they're sinking a lot of money into it, $40 billion. My goodness, I mean, this is a massive project. Huge. And we've already seen a lot of other big projects being uh, delayed or canceled by the courts, largely through First Nations opposition. So if this one, if it gets to this point where they make a final investment decision, they appear to have the support of all the First Nations impacted along along the pipeline route uh, from the elected band councils, if it can still be delayed by the courts because of the opposition of some uh, hereditary chiefs, yeah, certainly it would throw a lot of cold water over the investment climate uh, in Canada, and that's certainly why it's troubling to Trudeau in an election year and also to Horgan here in B.C. Politics is uh, so much a part of every day of our existence, and we seem to be talking about politicians and politics more and more and more, and of course that'll increase as we head toward the 21st of October and the federal election. Now, in the way of the federal election is a by-election in, uh, in British Columbia, and the by-election in which the leader of the Federal New Democratic Party, Jack Mead Singh, wants to be, actually become a member of the parliament, have a seat. 
If that does not happen, if Mr. Singh loses in Burnaby, what's the outcome of that going to be? Mike Smith is with me from the Vancouver province, political columnist and talk show host at our chorus radio station in Vancouver, CKNW. Mike, how much excitement or interest is there in this by-election in British Columbia? Well, you know what, uh, Roy? I think you're absolutely right to bring up the prospect of uh, Jagmeet Singh, the federal leader of the NDP, possibly losing this by-election. Now, this guy's a federal party leader. You'd think he should win it. This is a, a seat that was previously, is currently held by the NDP or was previously held. So you'd think he should win this thing. But he's a parachute candidate coming in from a, you know, a long distance. This is like a high-dive high halo jump here as a pa- parachute candidate. He's from Ontario, he's from, uh, he's from Brampton, yet here he is running in British Columbia. Now, he has moved out here. He, he and his wife have got a, a little house here. They must have a lot of money because a house in Burnaby can cost up to a million dollars. Anyway, he's moved here, but very few people don't know who Jagmeet Singh is. I mean, there have been some news stories done here where they've done sort of person-on-the-street interviews saying, do you know who he is? And a lot of people in that riding in Burnaby and suburban Vancouver, they don't even know who he is. So I think there's a, a chance that he loses uh, this seat. And you know what? I think that secretly there are probably some people in the NDP hoping he does lose. They would never admit that publicly, but the party is doing so poorly in the polls. Maybe some people are hoping he loses this seat and, then they, and they can uh, force him out and get a new leader in there before the election. And, uh, ironically, uh, on the other side of the coin, I think there are some people in uh, the Justin Trudeau's Liberal Party are hoping that he wins because he's been a weak leader for the NDP and they still want him to, they want him to hang around so they can kick him around some more in the election. So uh, I think that uh, he, he should win it, Roy, but I think it's possible that he loses it. You know, Mike, I, uh, I called uh, somebody who's very significantly involved with the federal NDP today, uh, earlier today, and I asked, would you be willing to make, uh, provide some comment about the by-election in Burnaby and Mr. Singh and what may happen if he loses the by-election. As you know, you well know what the answer to that was. No, I'm not willing to speak to that. Then you don't say anything for a minute or so or 30 seconds or so, and then they start talking again. It, and I, and I, and I, uh, the line I heard was, we'll burn those bridges when we get to them. <laughs> So. Yeah, well, like I say, you won't get them to admit it publicly, but I suspect there's a, a, a few ambitious types in the NDP ranks who are sitting back and looking at the woeful position that the NDP is in the federal polls right now and saying we maybe we wouldn't mind seeing this guy move to side. Look what happened, like you mentioned, with Doug Ford when That's he right. came in. Patrick Brown was taken out as the, the, the conservative leader in Ontario. It looked like a disaster. Doug Ford comes in, and now he's premier. Some people think that the NDP could do better with a different leader and maybe quietly hoping that this that uh, Jagmeet Singh loses this by-election. Well, Mike, we'll uh, keep a very close eye on that. And uh, as always, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Roy. Bye-bye. Mike Smith, columnist with the Vancouver Province, talk show host at CKNW Radio in Vancouver. He's one of the very best media people in this country. The Brexit issue has already cost uh, one prime minister... David Cameron, of course, and it could cost this particular prime minister. And Canada is involved somewhat because this country is engaged in informal talks. That's what we're told, informal talks on uh, trade with the UK before the Brexit deal is, or the situation is resolved. If Britain does, in fact, leave the uh, EU and maybe without conditions, then Canada would engage in free trade talks formally with, with Britain. But, you know, we've talked a lot about referenda 
on this program, and we've spoken with Lucy Stamm, who is a Swiss parliamentarian, about the system they have in Switzerland, where several times a year, the Swiss people, by way of referenda, decide what they want done with their country. And the federal government of Switzerland has no option but to follow the will of the people. That's the constitutional reality, Mr. Stamm has explained it to us. The Swiss ambassador to Canada has explained it to us on a number of time, occasions. And so here we had in the UK, as you know, there was the Brexit referendum about whether the, the country was going to leave the European Union or not. And there's been a lot going on since then. So many different pursuits and, and angles being pursued that it's difficult to keep track of everything as it's uh, unfolding. But on Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, in the British Parliament, there's going to be a vote which, as I said, could sink the government of Prime Minister May and possibly lead to a general election and a repeat or a repeat of the uh, Brexit referendum. And some of Ms. May's Conservative MPs, as well as the Speaker of the British Parliament, have turned on her. So what exactly is going on? Professor Alan Sked is back with us on the program. Professor Emeritus at the London School of Economics. He's the founder of UKIP, the political party which gave birth to the uh, Brexit movement. He's published 10 books on European and British history. Professor Sked, thank you very much for the time. A lot of history being made now. Well, yes, indeed. And Tuesday will be a very historic day. So what exactly is happening on Tuesday, and how did Britain get to Tuesday? Well, on Tuesday, at long last, the Prime Minister is bringing forward the deal she's negotiated with the European Union uh, for approval by the British Parliament. Uh, all the signs are it will go down to ignominious defeat, after which, if she had any honour, she would resign, but I doubt whether she'll do that. Um, she might, she's got a three-day period in which to get it changed, perhaps by concessions from Brussels. But the Labour opposition will uh, table a vote of no confidence in the government immediately after its defeat, I should think. And then uh, MPs who voted against the deal may well vote to support the government in a no-confidence vote to keep the Labour Party out or to stop the possibility of a general election. Why is it that uh, the Prime Minister is having so much difficulty unifying her own ranks? Well, because she's, uh, her negotiations have been absolutely dreadful. She's conceded and conceded and conceded. And we're now in a situation where if a deal is passed, the United Kingdom has to pay no less than £39 billion to the EU, which according to our constitutional experts, there's no reason for. But she's agreed to give them £39 billion uh, and for two years in an interim period while she is negotiating some kind of free trade deal, um, we will be, in fact, members of the European Union, but without any voting rights, so without any MEPs and without any commissioners. So we will just have to take the legislation it passes and implement it for two years, uh, and we will have no say in how this comes about. So it's a complete surrender. It's costing us £39 billion. Pounds. Uh, and in another part of the, the deal, which looks forward to our future relations, she's more or less conceded control of British defence policy to the EU. And so the deal is being opposed by the former head of MI6, the former head of the British Secret Service, 
by the former Chief of the Defence Staff, Field Marshal Lord Guthrie, and a whole slew of senior uh, armed forces people. So, I mean, it really is <laughs> the worst capitulation since at least Munich when Chamberlain gave in to Hitler. But as someone said, she's worse than Chamberlain. Chamberlain didn't offer to pay for the Blitz. So Tuesday is a historic day. It's going to be a historic day in Britain. It will indeed, yes. And it could lead to a general election, the possibilities there. It could lead to a resignation of the prime minister, as David Cameron resigned after he uh, favored staying with the EU, EU and the she'll British people should know. She'll away from office. I don't think she'll resign. You don't think she will? It, she is, it, is, it too sim- is it too simplistic to, to, I guess it is, but I was going to ask you, is it too simplistic to define this as a left versus right issue? Um, it's a curious uh, division. It's a division between those who have completely unrealistic ideas about the European Union, which may itself be on its last legs economically and politically because it's totally divided. Uh, And uh, they they still feel uh, that they're Europeans as well as British, uh, so they want not to leave the EU. And this includes the majority of Labour MPs and probably a majority of Conservative MPs The irony is that, of course, the whole political establishment was in favor of remaining in the EU, but then the population voted to get out. So although the the whole political establishment had promised solemnly to uh, obey and implement the wishes of the the, the popular result, uh, they don't really want to, and they're struggling like the devil in holy water, to uh, find a way uh, to prevent the democratic result of the referendum from uh, actually happening. But, um, you know, there's a, about at least a third or a half of the Conservative Party have now been converted to a full Brexit exit, uh, whereas the, the, the number of Labour MPs, despite the fact that the majority of the constituencies voted to leave, uh, are determined to keep us in. So the, the whole thing's not really right versus left. It's a huge muddle between those who have got an out-of-date, perhaps that rather idealistic vision of the European Union, and others who see it for the shambles it really is. So if the UK does leave the EU, and, and is that going to happen, do you think? Yes, okay. um, I'm still hopeful it will happen. All right. As, uh, we're by law now. See, these MPs who uh, said that they would uh, accept the referendum result then voted to uh, set off Article 50, which, to trigger Article 50, which is a process by which we leave. Right. Uh, and they've also voted uh, in that bill to have a withdrawal date of the 29th of March. So by law... We are committed to leave the EU on the 29th of March, 11 o'clock that night. Um, And that will happen unless a government or this government uh, actually asks the EU for permission to extend the date, and it would need the permission of all 27 members, or uh, it decides to revoke Article 50 altogether and keep us in the EU. But uh, as things stand... Um, we are due to leave on the 29th of March. Would you explain to me why it is that the referendum, the Brexit referendum, wasn't good enough? I mean, you have a majority of people in the UK voting to leave the EU. 
That's yeah. what the referendum was about. Yeah. So, so why why is this all now being? I don't want to use the word renegotiated, but I suppose that's going on. Why, why wasn't well, the referendum good enough? Why is there the possibility of another referendum? Because the people who lost the first one can't accept it. Uh, they're finding all sorts of excuses to say that those who voted to leave the first time didn't really know what the issues were about, were either too stupid or ill-educated or ill-informed. Uh, and therefore, now that there's been negotiations and everyone's better informed about how horrible the consequences supposedly will be of leaving, there should be a second referendum. But this would be the denial of democracy. And in any case, I think if a second referendum were fought, the, the Leave vote would win again. Um, if the UK leaves the EU on the 29th of March, very close to yeah. April Fool's Day, if the uh, I'm sure that point's been made in the UK more than mm, once. Yes. If the UK leaves the EU, what happens then to the European Union? Because as as we're observing what the the upheavals in the EU, it doesn't seem that this is a union that is particularly solid right now. No, that, that's it, it is completely divided in all different ways. Uh, economically, um, you know, it's based on this new currency, the euro, which, is a, which had a big crisis and which I think is about to have another one uh, because uh, the economy of Italy is very finely balanced. And uh, if it can't sell its national debt, then there'll be a, a, a crisis in the bond market. Uh, the Italian banks might fail, and that would spread to the French and German banks. Meanwhile, the, the program that was set up to bail out Greece <clears throat> can't be used in the case of Italy because the Italian economy is too big. So are you saying that the, are you I don't think the Germans would accept it. Are you are you but, saying the EU um, are you say, saying the EU could dissolve fairly quickly? Well, the eurozone could dissolve and that's the main thing that the EU does. Uh I think there will be a crisis an economic crisis this year. And there's also going to be a political crisis because Macron in France and Merkel who's on her way out anyway. Uh, have decided they want further integration and ever closer union, which is what the Commission wants. However, uh, the governments in uh, Eastern Europe, Poland, Hungary, uh, the Czech Republic, uh, also Austria, uh, and with the support of large parties in France and, and Spain is coming up and in other places, uh, are, are totally against this. And um, the European elections uh, this May... Uh, right. will be uh, a struggle between those who want more Europe and those who want less Europe. And the wave of populism in Europe is still still gathering strength. I mean, we've seen in Spain a new far-right populist party called Vox uh, suddenly determine the future of the largest region in Spain, Andalusia, and get rid of a socialist government there, which had been in power for four decades. So uh, the European Union... Is politically divided, radically divided between um, those who want more federalism and those who want no federalism, wow. really. And you've got to the stage where the, the de facto Prime Minister of Italy is uh, calling Macron, the President of France, public enemy number one, and Macron is referring to the Italian leader as a nasty little racist. <laughs> So I don't think there's much love loss there. No, and it, and it sounds like uh, the dictionary definition of a mess. 
Mm. Why, why are they voting one? The, the deal that, 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 that Theresa May is proposing uh, with, with the EU, right? That's in, in a nutshell, yes, that's, that's it. that's what they're okay. voting on. The, the deal that the EU and uh, Theresa May have signed off. Okay, and that was done in a hurry, and it's... And it and it's and it's and as you say, it's it's a mess. Remind us, please, why it is. Why did Britain's vote to leave the EU? Well, we've been a member of the EU. Well, initially it was called the European Economic Community. It then became the European Union later on. But we were a member since 1973, so that was over 40 years. Latterly, we've been paying in about 10 billion pound a year. Uh, is a contribution uh, which largely goes to other poorer members of the EU. Um, but we can't really see what we got back from it because uh, its fishing policy destroyed all our fishing communities and the fish stocks in the North Sea. Uh, its agricultural policy merely put up prices and gave large subsidies to large landowners. And apart from that, it didn't do very much. Uh, its main achievement was the euro, which uh, impoverished large parts of Eastern, uh, of Southern Europe. But uh, we didn't join that, so we were semi-detached anyway. Okay. But they had plans to take control of more and more aspects of policy. And the, the mantra that the Brexit camp had at the referendum was take back control. We wanted to take back control of our lawmaking, of our finances, of our borders, and right. of our trade. So uh, this was the arguments put forward, and right. uh, they were accepted by a majority. Professor Sked, thank you so much for the time. We'll, of course, watch very closely to see what happens on Tuesday, and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking again. Thank you again. Have a good Sunday evening. Thank you. Professor Bye. Alan Sked from the London School of Economics. It is going to be a huge day, huge day, in uh, Britain on Tuesday, and it'll have ramifications internationally. And we have the the leaders of France and Italy at each other's throats. I mean, this is a mess. Situation in the Port Alberni, British Columbia home, where the uh, the mom and stepfather of a 13-year-old girl and uh, friend of the the parents intervened in what they say was sexual luring by a 28-year-old man known to the family of their 13-year-old daughter. And the mom says police were not interested when she contacted them. You know the story, probably by now. And uh, so she took on the persona of her daughter and communicated with this guy and uh, said that she would be home. And so he came over for sexual activities, allegedly. And uh, so they grabbed him, hogtied him. And now they've, they've, they're, of course, arrested at the time, and they're now they're charged with assault. And I'm getting all sorts of uh, emails, and there's tweets on it. Brad tweets to, at the Roy Green Show, this seems like reasonable force. I'm sure it took all the restraint of the parents could muster not to bleep the scumbag. And there's a lot of emotion on these particular situations as you can imagine. My good friend Scott York, former Alberta prosecutor, he was the executive director of the Canadian Police Association and uh, the Ontario Victims of Crime Office and is a professor at Simon Fraser University, joins us on, uh, on this story. And we're also going to talk to Scott about the new drunk driving law, which will allow police to visit you at home within two hours of your having 
driven or said you've been driving and require a breathalyzer. So, Scott, this particular, uh, this particular story out of Port Alberni has folks in this country talking, and it's not uh, the kind of... I mean, we've, ta- we've talked about these issues before. Yeah. There's always a lot of emotion. There's always a lot of, uh, I stand with the parents, and, uh, boy, if this was my child, uh, look out. And I think that would be my personal reaction as well. So how, how do you... You're a dad. You're a, you're, a, you're a former prosecutor. Put this into perspective for us. Well, um, I think why this case has touched a nerve with people is that there's also a recognition that, you know, this family, uh, these parents didn't act the way they did uh, for no reason. That, in fact, when the mother discovered that her 13-year-old daughter was, in fact, on, you know, in quotation marks, her smartphone account had was having some kind of inappropriate communications with some creep who the family had to know, the guy was 28, um, she did the right thing and went to the police. And she spoke to the police in the media accounts that I've read. She spoke to the police several times to try to get them to take action. The kind of conduct the guy was engaged in is known as luring. It's an offense under the criminal code now as a result of changes that have been made over the years. But for reasons that aren't explained, the police never did anything. And it was only when the mother checked the phone, and this is, it sounds like it was like six or seven weeks later, uh, with the police still not having done anything or not, or, and, and I want to be fair, we don't know that the police didn't do anything, but the, nothing was explained to the mother that they did, and then she found out that, in fact, her, da- her daughter set up a separate account, and this was ongoing, and she again went to the police to try to get them to, you know, join in her, with her, to get this guy and uh, get him into a situation where they could then arrest him, and the police wouldn't act. And that's why the family acted. And and the other thing that is really important to appreciate, and if I was the prosecutor, this is one of the things I'd be looking at, uh, when they actually did get the guy, and they, uh, <clears throat> as you say, they uh, subdue him and hog tie him, they didn't go throw him out on a highway or something or leave him to, you know, freeze out in the field. What did they do? They called the police. So in other words, these are people who essentially took action themselves, as the mother explains, to protect her own child and potentially other kids because of their perception that the police were not acting. So I think any decision about whether or not to prosecute these people for their actions not only should consider, for example, all the potential legal defenses like you know, a, a private citizen's right of arrest and use of force and things like that, because that's all uh, in, entirely relevant here, but also, prosecutors, when they're deciding uh, whether to prosecute, and in B.C. you've got to have Crown consent to proceed, it's not only is there a reasonable prospect of conviction, but is prosecution in the public interest. And I must admit, when I read this, I have some serious questions as to whether or not prosecuting these people for what happened, as described, is actually in the public interest. What are we allowed to do to protect our, and we've had this conversation yeah. before as well, what are we by law now, the law was changed when Mr. Harper was the prime minister as far as uh, self-defense is concerned, and I suppose, uh, I expect that extends to family. Yes. What, what, what are we allowed to do? What is that family allowed to do to protect their own daughter in their own home? Well, um, as you can imagine, it's complicated, and it's, it's also almost always based on a fact-by-fact uh, case analysis. 
Um, essentially, if you find somebody committing a criminal offense, in this case, uh, child luring or attempted sexual interference with a 13-year-old girl, citizens do enjoy have the power of arrest that is historical. And our justice system wasn't invented last week by the Federal Department of Justice. Quite literally, and this is the societal issue, quite literally this goes back to the 13th century uh, in England when the uh, king's courts were created. And the idea was that uh, it was King Henry II struck a deal with the nobles to let the uh, crown do the prosecution instead of people the the barons uh, in, you know enforcing the laws in their on their own but the deal was you give us the responsibility and we will enforce the law on all citizens behalf okay and that's what's at the core of this so there are protections for individuals that are that find themselves in circumstances in, now part of the difficulty about this and this may well be the difficulty that the police faced our system has become as you know so process driven okay that you know the issue isn't whether the evidence is relevant uh it's whether it's admissible or not and that may have been what led to the delay and as a result that's what i must admit i find so concerning about this is is creating more of these circumstances where people find themselves in the situation where they are literally uh using you know uh force themselves to do what they would otherwise have expected and hope that the police would actually do can you imagine that is going to trigger that kind of analysis but as i say that's also part of what the crown's role is here is to consider whether prosecuting these people is in the public interest or not can you imagine if the 13 year old had been sexually assaulted oh. and the parents knew what was going on and had contacted police and had done nothing about it. Can you imagine the reaction, the the, yeah. the, the public reaction then? The parents would be absolutely vilified. vilified. And here yeah. they are, they're criminally charged for stepping up to to in, in protect their daughter. Yeah, I, I mean, in, in fairness, um, you know, they did take that extra step of, in effect, bringing, you know, pretending to be the girl and bringing the guy into the circumstances where they could then um, arrest and detain him. Okay, and that is part of what the challenge is, is for, for law enforcement, is they've got to make sure, and, and this, I worked with the, uh, the Toronto uh, Child Porn Unit, great, great people, we helped get them some money. Uh, it is really challenging because, as I said before, uh, you've got to make sure that what you do as law enforcement somehow doesn't violate the individual's charter rights. So there's always a fine line that you don't want to be uh, seen to be entrapping them and leading them into things. And that is pro uh, probably part of what the police had some hesitation about. But this is a really complex area of police investigations that is made more difficult as we have, you know, more and more dependency on this uh, social media. And that's why I suspect that it uh, probably uh, was taking some time. It's a, it's a really important issue, and this case probably reveals not only that you've got parents who were not just going to sit by, as you, as you were uh, describing, and took action themselves, which I think most of us would think is probably in the public interest, yeah. especially, as I say, because they, you know, once they got... It's the called kid, being called a parent. Cops. It's called being okay. taking care of your kids. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But also because it points out perhaps the need for uh, better laws so as to make it such that the police are more easily able to do what we expect. So now, Scott, we have the new drunk driving legislation and uh, the part that really has got people exorcised 
is the knock on the door from the police and they want a breathalyzer test within two hours of your having allegedly driven. In the meantime, you've gotten home, you've had a, maybe had a drink. Uh, your thoughts, please, sir. Um, well, first of all, uh, we need to keep the context of this in mind because these are changes that were made um, as a result of the legalization of marijuana. And so in the legislation that dealt with that, there were a whole series of changes that were made uh, that su- definitely uh, uh, people pointed out, you know, like, why are we doing this? Uh, and it was driven by the fact of the difference between uh, roadside testing for THC, which is the, uh, the stimulant in uh, marijuana and alcohol, and how exactly that was going to be done. And it, it, it feels like this is also something uh, that was tweaked uh, by the de- presumably the Department of Justice officials uh, so as to deal with some concerns that had been raised in cases about uh, what were potential defenses arising out of the police use of, use of those roadside uh, uh, breath-testing devices. Because it used to be that um, the officer had to have some basis to believe that the individual had alcohol in their blood. Reasonable. Pulled them over. That's reasonable. Yeah, I think so, too. Uh, <clears throat> but I remember, uh, you know, uh, actually uh, when I was uh, working with the, uh, the cops and saying, okay, pay attention. Here are the kinds of physical signs that you need to be looking out for. Because, Roy, you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, there was actually, actually pharmacological research on what uh, uh, alcohol consumption affected, what uh, both cognitive abilities and physical abilities that's how we set the limits at point zero eight. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree with any of that part, and no, I understand and that. It, I understand it had to do with the marijuana, but look what we've got now, Scott. THC. Yeah, but look at what we've got. Look at where it's gone. I can but go I home tonight, a, and I, I can get a knock on the door. Hmm? I think it's a gross overreaction. Okay, because now you don't have to have any grounds other than uh, on the first part that the individual is driving a vehicle. Okay, but as you point, quite correctly point out, it's extended the time to two hours, which is the amount of time that you have to have taken the ultimate breathalyzer tests, because that's the time period in which the alcohol would have uh, dissipated out of the person's system. But as you described, it's absurd, in my opinion, because it now says, well, you, the person doesn't even have to be driving for it the officer to administer the test. You can show up two hours later at their home. You can do it even before they're in the vehicle. Uh, frankly, it's going to be, in my opinion, without any hesitation, I say this, it's going to be struck down as unconstitutional. It's an intrusion on a person's um, uh, uh, liberty. It's an unreasonable search and seizure. There's a case called Stillman from the Supreme Court of Canada, and I think it's, quite frankly, a badly drafted law that uh, should have been assessed in a process that we have that the federal government chose not to use. You know, it's almost as though you feel you have to go out and buy a breathalyzer unit that has a date and time stamp yeah. so that when you get home, you can breathe into the thing. It records the date and the time, and it shows that you don't have any alcohol in your in your bloodstream or one or two, you know, whatever the, whatever the, me- the measure is, less than 0.8. And, uh, and so you can prove that you weren't drinking. I, I, I imagine this isn't a very popular... No. piece of legislation and with police either. The other thing that I, um, I think is the case is that, uh, and I've seen that some defense counsel are pointing this out, in effect what it's doing is it's putting the onus on the accused to show that, hey, yes, you know, my blood alcohol was 120 milligrams, um, 
but that's because I was drinking after I got home. It's putting literally that evidentiary burden, which is not the way our legal system yeah. works, nor should it work that way. And as I say as well, too, I think with the THC, the absence of that study on THC, they're going to set these um, you know, arbitrary standards if they're not based on empirical evidence like this pharmacological research, I think that, too, is going to get struck down. And it's just a demonstration, I think, of, uh, you know, a combination of uh, lack of work that was done in advance uh, that should have been done before this was legalized because all the ramifications include things like what we're talking about now with impaired driving by drug as well, but also that it... Uh, was improperly uh, used as a vehicle to achieve things, and I put achieve again in quotation marks, uh, that didn't give proper consideration of the fact of what the practical impacts would be and how it was going to be unconstitutional. Just think of the number of things you can do in two hours. Exactly. Just think of all the things that you can do in a two-hour period. Well, and plus, Roy, you're not driving a vehicle. You're not, how, do you, how do they know that you were driving the vehicle? Well, Could be somebody they, else. They got information about it. Could be somebody else. It's not necessarily you who's driving it. No, but the justification is, is not there. The justification yeah. that was used... Can you stick around a couple of minutes longer? There? Can you stay a couple of minutes longer? Uh, yeah. You don't have anything to do. I do, actually. Do you? Yeah. Okay, well, give me a few, five more minutes, six yes. more minutes, okay? Thanks, Scott. I really appreciate you taking the no time. Well, one thing that I wanted to get at, and you and I, I exchanged an email on this earlier in the week, and I asked you whether it was, was necessary for this legislation to be tested in court. In other words, somebody's charged, they go to court, the court makes a decision, there's an appeal, it goes to the next level of court, yeah. and then it goes to the Supreme Court of Canada a couple of years later. And I asked you whether there's a direct line between the legislation and the Supreme Court of Canada. Precluding, precluding the court cases. Uh, it's just, it's, however, it's very rarely used. It's called a reference. It's under the Supreme Court Act. Um, in uh, Section 53, literally the governor and council, in other words, cabinet, can say, take the bill and say, okay, here is draft legislation. Is this compliant with the charter? They can even frame it in you know, more specific terms in, t- in relation to actual questions. Uh, but in effect, what it does is it circumvents that lengthy process you've described where we go, you know, case after case after case, different uh, uh, case levels, further delays in the court system, uh, and it goes directly to the Supreme Court, who then is obliged by law to give an opinion as to whether or not it's charter compliant. Uh, it is something that I have recommended should be used much more so as to uh, avoid the kind of delay that we see all too frequently. And um, as I am uh, aware of the, uh, the description of the applications, of this, I don't have any doubt whatsoever, Roy, that Defense Council will properly challenge this legislation and that it ultimately is going to be found unconstitutional. Okay. I spoke with yesterday with Toronto criminal lawyer Ari Goldkind, who likes the legislation a lot, and we kind of started shouting at each other about it. But, um, <laughs> well, and, yeah, it gets people it – gets you, it gets you fired up. Now, let me ask you as well about the parents. Go back to the first story we talked about, and that's the parents in Port Alberni, British Columbia. So they've been charged with assault. What do you think is – what can happen? I want to ask you to think. Tell me what you think is likely to happen. But one, what might happen? Uh, is there is there a chance that they will not go to court? That this yes. will be worked out? Yes. The um, the crown has the discretion, as I mentioned, uh, to decide whether or not it is uh, 
not in the public interest to prosecute these individuals mm-hmm. and simply stay the charges. Okay. In my opinion, that's what should happen. Renee, you also said that in the 13th century, I think it was, or the 12th yes. century, that the king's, was it the king's court? That's right. In Britain said they made a deal with the, with the people, you will no longer handle justice, we'll do it. And so this is why we now have a judicial system. Yeah. This reminds me of a conversation you and I had with Doug Walsh. I was trying to desperately think of his name over the last few minutes, and it just came to me this second. Doug Walsh, in the early 90s, he was then the assistant attorney general for the state of Washington. And, the, and Mr. Walsh told us, because there were a lot of questions about Canada's justice system at the yeah. time, and he said... Uh, he, he described the development or the evolve, evolving of the justice system this way. He said, "You imagine in the uh, in the old West, there was a cattle rustler, and uh, the ranchers said, we can't have this happen. We're going to go and get this cattle rustler.' So they went out as a group and uh, and they found the guy, and then they got a horse or a rope and and they found a tree, and the rest followed. And this this is how they controlled cattle rustlers, and eventually." The court system came out to the West, and they said, no, you're not going to do this anymore. We will handle justice for, for you. You're not allowed to do this any longer. So, they, so, the, so, the, so the ranchers you know, let the horse out in the corral. They used the rope for other purposes, and they cut down the tree. Now, over a period of time, the rustler who, when he was convicted, started to get better deals and better deals and better deals from the court as the system started to focus on the rehabilitation of the criminal as opposed to restitution and proper justice for the victim. And uh, Mr. Walsh said to us, eventually, the uh, ranchers started to pull the horse back out of the corral and grab the rope and start looking for a tree. You know, and and I think in some cases that's a it's a it's it's a metaphor, but it's all about having confidence in the system. Yeah, and um, we don't want to go down that road. No, we don't. I mean, that was his that was his metaphor. Yeah, and and you know what? You see this in different examples as well too. We're talking about it here in relation to parents, but you and I have talked about other cases as well too. One of the realities in our justice system, uh, although we don't report it as as well as we should. Um, Statistics Canada, the Juristat division, used to do every five years they did what they called a victimization survey, and it indicated that fewer and fewer people were reporting crimes because they lost faith faith in the justice system. The idea was, as you as you described, and this is part of our history. You know, this wasn't invented last week by the federal Department of Justice. Um, this was the whole point, is that a crime against one person was a crime against us all. That's why the style of cause is, you know, you see it written, it's R versus, the R stands for Regina, which is the crown. It uh, doesn't mean all the cases happen in Saskatchewan. It means that it is literally a crime against the people. And hence, the crown, the representative of the crown, is a public uh, official. Uh, that's really quite important. I remember speaking at an event one time in Scarborough. There was a, a you know, huge crime uh, outburst going on, and a lady, and we were talking about it, and a lady said, you know, um, I grew up understanding that, you know, it was in my best interest to protect my family and the safety of my family when I saw somebody committing a crime to report it to the police. And so, you know, there's this guy who's at the end of, uh, you know, my driveway, and he's selling drugs to my kids. So I call the police, and they come, and they arrest him, and I think, oh, that's great. And then two days later, I look out, and he's at the end of my driveway, you know, 
drawn his finger across the throat when he looks at me. And he goes, and she just said, like, why would I continue to report crimes? Mm-hmm. That is what I think is yeah. one of the really worrying aspects yeah. about some of the failures of our justice system is that it's undermining the confidence that the public has in the justice system, and that has negative public impacts on us all. Scott, 10 years or so ago, there was a teacher in the Toronto area who had uh, two little, two young sons, and he was very close to a schoolyard. And uh, teenagers were smoking pot in the schoolyard. And it was hot summer night, and he had the windows open uh, for the uh, for his kids, so he didn't want the marijuana smoke wafting into their bedrooms. So he went out, and he asked the kids politely to go somewhere else. So his house started to get vandalized. His car started to get vandalized. He was threatened. So he went to the police. And you know what the what he was told by the police? Sell your house and move. Yeah. That's and I spoke with him on the air. Yeah, at the time. And one of the, again, the, the things that worry me when I, uh, I mentioned it even during uh, today's discussion, about how our, our system has become so much more process-focused as opposed to, you know, uh, delivering the appropriate results. And that's a direct consequence of the, uh, of the charter. And I think of governments that are not tailoring legislation, and we were talking about it before in relation to these uh, the roadside uh, breath sample uh, uh, amendments that are made. Yep. Okay, uh, this is the reality that we have to deal with, but we can't just ignore the consequences because I think that has the very negative impact of undermining public confidence in the justice system. And if you don't have confidence, you have nothing. And that's a dangerous road to go down. Yeah, I have one more quick question for you because I see it on my call screen. Okay. Uh, Robert is calling from Calgary. Don't go away, Robert. I want to talk to you. But his question is, when it comes to the police coming to your door up to two hours after you've driven and demanding a breathalyzer, his question is, suppose you refuse to answer the door. You know, um, it's a good point, and I actually wanted to make that because however, you know, frankly, let me put it in legal terms, however dumb this new amendment may actually be, uh, don't underestimate the consequences because if you refuse to, to comply with that test, that's a crime. Even if you even if you don't open the door, well, they're not likely going to just sit there and not let you not open the door, because they have the they're investigating a criminal offense and they would have the authority to enter the. Uh, okay, the I got residence. you. I got you. But don't underestimate that. If you say like this is really stupid, I'm not going to do that. That's a crime, and so the consequences for an otherwise law-abiding citizen that isn't even driving the vehicle, you know, you potentially get a criminal record. Or as some of these lawyers have pointed out. If, you know, because of that reverse onus on it, you have to show that, in fact, that the, your blood alcohol level was because, or your THC levels were because of what you did after you were driving, the onus is on you to prove it. That is not the way our justice system is supposed to work. Guilty until you prove yourself innocent. That's not the way our system is supposed to work. Yeah. Now, having said that, we also need to get rid of a lot of, I think, what is the procedural, you know, crap that's in the system that causes this level of uh, frustration and delay. But this bill is not the way to do it, in my opinion. Always good talking to you, my friend. Thank you for the extra time. Okay, Roy. Bye-bye. Scott Newark. When it comes to that particular piece of legislation, it proves what I've been saying for decades. You cannot possibly, under any circumstance, outthink those who aren't thinking. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, 
Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 